Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we discuss the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 7, Role-Playing Games from 1985 to 1994. Okay, I know I said we were starting in 1985, but I'm actually going to reach back to 1984 for the first stop on today's tour. Steve Jackson Games released Tune that year. Designed by Greg Kassian and Warren Spector, it's subtitled The Cartoon Role-Playing Game. Now, what makes a cartoon role-playing game list-worthy? Because it knocks the accepted conventions of role-playing games straight on their ass. Tune is, by its very design, intended to be very tongue-in-cheek. While characters are created, they only have 23 skills. Characters also have hit points. However, it should be noted that characters cannot die. Much like in a cartoon, if the character reaches zero hit points, it falls down and it stays there. But, just like in a real cartoon, the character is back up and at full hit points at the start of the next scene. Playing into this theme, the Game Master is known as the Animator, and there's a rule specifically prohibiting the use of the word tune to describe the characters. The game encourages the types of behaviors seen in cartoons. Fun is the word of the game, and the rules even encourage players to break the rules, so long as the game is fun. The only unbreakable rule is that the Animator and the other players have to find the behaviors and actions to be funny. If they're funny, they're legal. If they're not, well, this type of behavior is a lot like the acting technique of breaking the fourth wall as it removes that particular illusion from the scene for just a moment. Oh, and to pay homage to the classic Warner Brothers cartoons of the 1930s to 1960s, they have an Ace Corporation instead of the old standby of Acme. This was also to avoid any copyright violations. Same with the pre-generated characters within. They were very similar to classic cartoon characters without actually being those characters. Now, the game has gotten multiple reprints over the years, plus some supplemental material. However, and I speak from personal experience here, the only copies you can find of this game will be used. But, and I again speak from personal experience, this game is a lot of fun to run as a one-night deal from time to time. I wouldn't recommend running Tune as a long-running campaign because the joke can run pretty thin if you try to run it for multiple back-to-back -back sessions. Now, reviewers over the years agree with my assessment. They loved the humor and the writing and recommended it across the board for occasional play. Several even called it an essential purchase. In 1985, Chaosium released Pendragon. Developed by Greg Stafford, it has a literary basis, specifically the 15th century Arthurian romance La Morte d'Arthur. Pendragon was a different type of fantasy role-playing game. It intentionally stayed away from the cliches of traditional fantasy games, choosing instead to stay true to the source material. What this means is that adventures tended to be more political, military, or spiritual in nature rather than the standard dungeon crawl. These adventures also tended to be presented as taking place alongside events from the Arthurian legend. The default setting of Pendragon is a mix of actual British history in the 5th and 6th centuries, high medieval history, which is the 10th to 15th centuries, 
and the legends of King Arthur. In fact, the setting addresses some of the actual political forces of Britain during those times, Celts fighting the Germanic, Irish, and Pictus invaders after the fall of Rome. However, technology and other cultural aspects seem to be more 10th to 15th century, such as a feudal society, coat of arms, jousts, courtly love, and the like. Another big part of Pendragon was how things were handled. Characters would typically have one adventure per year. The rest of the time in-game was spent determining what the characters were doing in their real lives, managing estates, getting married, having children, getting older, and eventually passing on. In fact, the game intends for the campaign to be generational, with the player taking over the children or heirs of their previous characters in order to continue. Pendragon uses a system that is pretty much like other games. However, the one major difference Pendragon had is its system of personality traits and passions that were used to control and represent the character's behaviors. These were things like chaste, lustful, energetic, lazy, and modest, proud. Twenty-sided dice were used to either use a virtue or resist a vice, and the results would help to drive the narrative along. Magic was not a part of the first edition of the game, but it was introduced in the later fourth edition. Pendragon has had six editions, though the second was never released for some reason, with multiple publishers. However, Chaosium, after giving up the rights in 1997, regained them in 2018, and they're the ones behind the current sixth edition of the game. Reviews of Pendragon have been overwhelmingly positive. Several publications have called Pendragon one of the most underrated games of all time. Pendragon has won three different awards over the years. The 1986 Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Supplement, the 1991 Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Rules of 1990, and the 2007 Diana Jones Award for Excellence in Gaming. 1985 also saw the release of Fantasy Hero. Published by Hero Games, Fantasy Hero used the Hero System rules we discussed a couple of weeks ago. It was designed by Stephen S. Long. Fantasy Hero adapted the Hero System rules by adding fantasy rules for magic items, spells, and fantastical creatures as the original Hero System rules were designed for superhero games. One other cool part of Fantasy Hero was that the initial edition included two short sample adventures, as well as rules that could be used to convert other role-playing games to Fantasy Hero. Fantasy Hero has had five editions, with the most recent being released in 2003. Reviewers tend to like the game, though many have cautioned that it isn't a game for the lazy. Quote, you'll have to do a little more work to play, but that work is well worth it. End quote. In 1986, Steve Jackson Games created a game system that has more than claimed its place in the role-playing game world, GURPS. Short for Generic Universal Role-Playing System, GURPS was intended to be a system to be used in any game setting. GURPS utilizes a character point build system, as we've discussed in past episodes of this podcast. As a reminder, this system of character building utilizes a set number of points that are to be distributed through abilities, skills, and powers. GURPS also utilizes an advantage-disadvantage system that has been used in other systems. While reviewers were initially skeptical about GURPS, it has survived four editions and is still being reprinted and sold today. The main reason for this is simple. GURPS is, in the opinions of many, 
the easiest system to use that can be used for any game type. Steve Jackson Games has also supplied its gamers with a plethora of supplemental materials over the years, allowing GURPS to continue to grow and evolve into the mainstay of any gamer's game library. GURPS won the Origins Award in 1988 for Best Role-Playing Rules of 1988 and was a 2000 inductee into the Origins Hall of Fame. Many of its expansions have also won awards. Nowadays, when gamers talk about an all-inclusive game system, in other words, a system that works with multiple types of games, GURPS is most likely the system they're referring to. 1987 brought the role-playing version of the most popular movie trilogy ever to that point, when West End Games published Star Wars, the role-playing game. Officially licensed for Lucasfilm and designed by Greg Kassian, Star Wars was set inside the known Star Wars universe of that time. Utilizing the D6 system West End Games had created the year previously for their Ghostbusters movie-based game, it was an exceptionally popular game with players, though some have argued whether or not it was because of the ease of play or because for the first time, gamers could play a game in the Star Wars universe with actual stats for actual heroes from the original trilogy. Or, let's face it, you could actually play a Jedi and do the Jedi mind trick. This is the podcast you're looking for. Anyway, the Star Wars game didn't bring any new or unique mechanics to the gaming world, but it did bring some new information to the Star Wars universe. In fact, when Timothy Zahn was hired to write the novels that would eventually become the Thrawn trilogy of books in the early 1990s, Lucasfilm sent him a box of West End Games Star Wars books and instructed him to utilize their background information when he was writing the novels. In fact, some Star Wars alien names, such as Twi'lek, Rodian, and Quarren, first appeared in the West End Game books. And as much crap as Disney gets for changing the universe... Those names, plus a ton of other background originally published in these books, are still deemed to be officially canon. Star Wars got three editions printed from West End Games, though that number doesn't reflect edition titles as there were two editions of second edition. Also, by the time West End Games lost the license, around 140 sourcebook and adventure supplements had been published. In addition, West End Games also published 15 editions of a magazine series, the Star Wars Adventure Journal, between 1994 and 1998. It had new adventures and articles for the games, with short stories included to inspire game masters. They also had news relating to the Star Wars universe of games, movies, television shows, and upcoming projects. West End Games lost the license when they declared bankruptcy in 1998. Wizards of the Coast picked up the license shortly after. They published a version of the game in the early 2000s based on their new D20 system, but they lost the license in 2010. In 2018, Fantasy Flight Games, who now owns the license, released a reprint of West End Games' original core book, and that's the version available for sale in game stores around the world. Reviews of the game were overwhelmingly positive, and the system sold consistently well. It also won the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Rules of 1987. 1987 also brought Ars Magica to the gaming world. Published by Lion Rampart, designed by Jonathan Tweet and Mark Ryan Hagen, Ars Magica is set in Mythic Europe, which is a historically grounded version of Europe around 1200 AD. 
One of the most unique things about Ars Magica is that it was one of the earliest examples of a troop system. Under the troop system, each player has a primary character, or magus, or magus, I guess, depending on how you pronounce it, plus a companion. In addition, there are a number of other characters that belong to the troop as a whole. So, in any given game, players could be playing their magus, their companion, or one of the others, known as grogs. What makes that third part interesting is that it is possible for a single grog to have been played by every single one of the players at some point in time during the campaign. Another feature of the troop system is a group collaborative effort in creating the campaign world and stories. Even deeper, troops have the option to rotate the story guide, the GM of Ars Magica, from game to game, which allows for each story to have a different flavor to it. Something else that gave Ars Magica a different flavor was its use of medieval Latin for many of its key terms. Ars Magica was a D10 system, and many of the unique features of this game were picked up by other games later on, such as many of the games developed by White Wolf. We'll discuss some of those later on in this show. Lion Rampant published the first two editions of the game, then merged with White Wolf to release the third edition in 1991. Wizards of the Coast acquired the rights in 1994, but they didn't do much more than release a few supplements before dropping the license and swearing they were permanently out of the role-playing game business. Atlas Games published the fourth edition in 1996 and the fifth edition in 2004. Since 2014, the fourth edition has been distributed for free at the Warehouse 23 site, with Steve Jackson Games making this possible. Ars Magica won two awards for best role-playing game. Origins in 1996, and again in 2004. Reviewers gave Ars Magica high marks across the board. They pointed out the mechanics, the troop system, and the storytelling system, among other things. Forwarding to 1989, the gaming world got something entirely new. Avalon, The Legend Lives. This wasn't a tabletop role-playing game. Instead, it was a text-based, multiplayer, online role-playing game world. Developed and published by Yehuda Simmons, it was first released on October 28, 1989 at the gaming convention Adventure 89. Now, as this podcast has a focus on tabletop games, I'm not going to get into too many more of the specifics, but there are a few things about Avalon that need to be noted. It's still being played online today, making it the longest continuously running online role-playing game in history. So take that, World of Warcraft. It also brought features that have since become signature components of the role-playing genre. Real economies, distinct ecosystems, weather effects, gods with followers and priests, player housing and autonomous governments, warfare systems, and skill-based, real-time, player-versus-player combat. It was a fully immersive experience, and reviewers loved it. If it sounds like your cup of tea, check it out. Now let's get back to the table. 1989 brought the first edition of a game that has carved out its own niche in the gaming world, Shadowrun. Published by FASA Corporation and designed by Robert N. Charnett, Paul Hume, Tom Dowd, L. Ross Babcock III, Sam Lewis, Dave Wiley, Mike Mulville, and a whole lot more, Shadowrun combined the genres of cyberpunk, urban fantasy, crime, and then sprinkled in conspiracy horror and detective fiction. Set initially in the year 2050, the characters are Shadowrunners, people who are willing to take less than legal jobs for money. 
Humans exist, along with elves, dwarves, and other exotics. There are also orcs and trolls, but many weren't born that way. Things happened, prior to the start of the game, that caused large numbers of humans to transform into orcs and trolls, and some of the early stories dealt with this as well. Governments aren't the most powerful entities in the game. That honor belongs to the megacorporations, or megacores for short. There are a number of them, and many, if not all of them, can be involved in any given game, based on the types of jobs that need to be done. The first edition of Shadowrun was a D6 system, with focuses on skills rather than classes. However, there are a number of archetypes available for characters to play, and it flavors how the Shadowrunner team is composed. FASA published the first two editions of Shadowrun, with fantasy publications handling the third and fourth. Catalyst Game Labs got the rights next, and they published two further editions, with the most recent, number six, released on August 26, 2019. Reviewers loved the idea of the early editions, but tended to pick some of the mechanics apart. Subsequent editions have gotten higher praise and much better reviews. Shadowrun won the 1992 Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Rules and for Best Graphic Representation of a Role-Playing Game, Adventure, or Supplement. Further editions have picked up an additional nine awards. In 1990, Palladium Books brought rifts to the game tub. Designed by Kevin Simbita, C.J. Carella, Kevin Long, Patrick Nowak, Julius Rosenstein, and others, Rifts is a multi-genre role-playing game. Rifts takes place in a post-apocalyptic future and draws elements from cyberpunk, science fiction, fantasy, horror, western, mythology, and many other genres. By the way, you, you noticing the cyberpunk trend in the late 80s and early 90s? Okay, it wasn't just me? Rifts is, as the title implies, a crossover environment for a number of other Palladium games with completely different universes, which are connected through rifts on Earth that lead to different spaces, times, and realities, known as the Rifts Megaverse. Rifts utilizes all of the dice in the dice bag, just like D&D, but has managed to scale hit points and damage to seem more real. An example is that characters might only have between 1 and 4 hit points, while guns can do 1 to 4 points of damage. So in reality, a character could die with 1 hit. Now there's a whole lot more to the system, but as I have it noted for a deep dive down the line, I'm going to leave it here for the moment. Rifts has had two editions, and the second edition is still being printed today. In addition, every role-playing game system published by Palladium is technically compatible with Rifts as the concept of the rifts allow for bringing those characters in. Palladium has published a ton of material for the system over the past 30 years and continues to do so. Early reviews were exceptionally positive, but later reviews they didn't really seem to like some of the changes. 1991 brought another game changer, Vampire the Masquerade. Created by Mark Reinhagen and published by White Wolf Publishing, Vampire changed the landscape of the role-playing game while defining its own genre, gothic punk. Vampire was the first in a line of storyteller system games developed by White Wolf. The storyteller system works with D10s. At character creation, each player is given a certain number of character points that go into attributes or skills. Each dot is equal to a single D10. Therefore, when asked to roll to do something, the storyteller, which is the name for the GM in a vampire game, will tell the player which attributes and or traits to use. 
The player rolls that many D10s, then determines how many successes, how many dice roll the target number, and botches, ones, they have. Once botches are subtracted from successes, if the number of successes needed to accomplish the task is reached, the character succeeds. Now, there are a lot more features to the storyteller system, but as we'll be discussing White Wolf in greater detail in another episode, I want to just leave it with the basics for right now. Mark Ryan Hagen teamed up with Tom Dowd, who co-designed Shadowrun, to work out the mechanics for Vampire, using some of the best parts of Shadowrun and changing others to fit a Vampire setting. Now, as the title says, the players are literally playing vampires. Stories involve the geopolitics of vampire society, their interactions with other clans, with humans, and in some cases with werewolves. Vampire has survived five editions and five different publishers. The fifth edition was published in 2018 by Onyx Path Publishing. However, it has been reported that Kenneth Height is designing a sixth edition that will be distributed by Modifus Entertainment. However, as game development can take many years, no possible release date has been hinted at. The first edition of Vampire was universally panned for its artwork and copy editing. Reviewers also called the rules, quote, lacking in detail. However, they all seem to love the wide-ranging campaign advice and the different type of game that Vampire is. Over time and editions, the reviews have improved, and the success of and love for this game have grown. Vampire the Masquerade won the Origin Award for Best Role-Playing Rules of 1991, the Casas Bellis Awards for Best Role-Playing Game of 1992, and Best French Translation of a Role-Playing Game in 1992, and was a 2007 Origins Award Hall of Famer. Hey, speaking of werewolves, White Wolf released Werewolf the Apocalypse in 1992. Mark Ryan Hagen gets design credit for this game as well, and it utilized the same game mechanics as Vampire which of course makes sense since White Wolf was responsible for them both. Of course, the major difference between the games is that in Werewolf, the characters are Garou, and the geopolitics work out a whole lot differently. There's still the gothic punk vibe, but Werewolf tends to be a little more dirty or gritty than Vampire. Werewolf has survived five editions from two companies. Fifth edition was released earlier this year from Onyx Path Publishing. Reviews were mostly positive for Werewolf, and it has been nominated for a whole lot of game awards over the past 30 years. 1992 also saw Over the Edge. Created by Jonathan Tweet and Robin Laws and published by Atlas Games, Over the Edge built on the systems developed for Ars Magica, Star Wars, Shadowrun, and Vampire. Over the Edge has been acknowledged by many as the game that proved the independent role-playing game movement really started humming later in the 1990s, could work. In playing the game, much like several of the other games we've discussed today, characters were quantified with traits, and the number of dots in a trait represented the number of dice that were rolled. From a game master's perspective, the game was written to encourage more improvisation and creativity, both from the GM and the players, and the rules were a lot looser. Tweed himself reported that he'd created Over the Edge to be spontaneous, reporting that, quote, I generally mix alcohol, caffeine, and nicotine to get my head right for OTE. I invented whatever came to mind as we played. End quote. Over the Edge has been well supported, with three editions being released. Third edition came out in 2019. Reviewers loved the gameplay mechanics, but tended to find issue with the character creation. 
Now, while there were a ton more releases as we headed towards 1994, I wanted to take the time we have left in today's show and take a look at the international gaming market. The big thing that allowed for games to spread to other countries was the ability to get them translated. This allowed for sales in countries where English wasn't the primary language. Through the course of discussing a number of games during the process of this show, I've noted that D&D, RuneQuest, Call of Cthulhu, and others were translated and sold in Spain, Germany, Japan, and other nations all over the world. Another huge development was the development of game creation in other countries. Oh, and I want to apologize up front because I know I'm going to butcher some of these pronunciations. Germany saw the release of Midgard, 1981. Designed by Jürgen E. Frank and published by Midgard Press, Midgard was the first role-playing game published in German as well as the first game created in Germany. The game itself is a fantasy world utilizing the whole bag of dice, much like D&D. The game itself is a fantasy world, utilizing the whole bag of dice, much like D&D. The major difference between the two is that Midgard doesn't place a lot of emphasis on level. Midgard has gone through five editions, with the most recent published in 2013. The Dark Eye came to the market in 1984. Designed by a team of creators, led by Ulrich Kaisau, the Dark Eye eventually became the most successful role-playing game on the German market, outselling D&D. The Dark Eye is also a fantasy system, with a well-developed system of attacks, defenses, magic, and the like. Five total editions have been published in Germany, and the game was first released in English in 2003, when 4th edition was released. Sweden got into the game creation market in 1982, publishing Drakkar och Demoner, which is Swedish for Dragons and Demons. By the way, Swedes who still play the game refer to it as DoD. Designed by Thomas Bjorklund and Lars Thor and published by Eventrispol, which later became Target Games, DoD plays a lot like D&D from the aspects of character creation, monsters, and dice. One big positive for DoD was that when it was first released, it had a fully designed and developed campaign setting. This made it way easier for gamers to plug in and play the game. DoD survives. It has had six editions and survived through three separate publishers. Oh, and one other note. In 2013, a 28-minute short film based on the game called Drakkar Ak Demoner Tronladenren was released. The United Kingdom got Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 1986. Based on the war game and published initially by Games Workshop, the major difference between Warhammer and other fantasy games was its time setting. Warhammer was set in the early Renaissance era, meaning that firearms were readily available, unlike in other games where they were either unavailable or rare, nearly magical items. Warhammer also brought chaos to the game world as a force of its own. Secret cults, dark knights, and beastmen wander the world, and the characters would have to deal with them. Mimicking the combat system from the miniature game, combat could be deadly. Most human characters could only absorb one or two hits before either being crippled or dead, and that meant strategy was important. The game also had a career feature, which was also central to the game, as it was necessary for characters to advance. The types of careers available represented the types of careers people would have had in the early Renaissance period. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay has four editions, with the most recent being published in 2018 by Cubicle 7. 
The game was well-reviewed and won any awards in 2005 for Best Production Values and Best Game and in 2019 for Best Writing. Adventures of the North Kaleva Heroes was a Finnish game published by Neil Pellet in 1988. It was designed by Posse Jahun. The gameplay was similar to D&D, with the Finnish flair of being set in the Finnish Iron Age and taking some of the characters and monsters from Finnish mythology and the Kalvala, the national epic of Finland. Unfortunately, reviews across the board were negative and sales were low, leading to this game getting only the single edition. Japan entered the role-playing game market in 1989, publishing Sword World. Created by the team at Group SNE, the game relies on 2d6 for all roles, as other dice weren't readily available in Japan at the time. Each role was then translated into other numbers using a series of charts. Classes and races in the game were similar to other fantasy classes, except Sword World referred to classes as Ginu. Additionally, Sword World is considered to be a hybrid system of class-based and skill-based systems, as the game considers both to be equally important. Group SNE also pioneered a new type of book genre based on this game. The genre is called Replay, and these are game logs arranged for reading, kind of like a light novel. These are extremely popular in Japan, and readers gobble them up as fast as they can print new replays. They even print replays based on D&D games and, and other types of role-playing games. Sword World has had four editions printed, with the most recent published in July 2018. Italy, Spain, and Mexico saw publications of their own games over the years as well, though the majority of them didn't sell as well as those I've mentioned at this point, and few of them, if any, received English translations. After the fall of communism in the early 1990s, the role-playing hobby spread even further, with Poland publishing a magazine, Magica i Mix, Magic and Sword, in 1993, then publishing a number of role-playing games. The rest of the former communist bloc soon followed, with magazines and games of their own. However, by the mid-1990s, the role-playing industry worldwide began to see a decline and it was due to advances in home computing and game consoles. While some companies wouldn't survive, others would, and the games they would release would change the game industry as the 90s chugged along into the new millennium. That, though, is a story for another day. Next week, we'll come back to the main timeline and pick up in 1995. But for now, our tour has come to the close. As we close, I wanted to take a second to send a shout-out to the cast and crew of the comedy role-playing podcast, Not Another D&D Podcast, known as NADPOD for short. I've been listening to this show for a couple of years now, and these episodes typically are playing while I'm doing the research for this show. So, to Brian Murphy, Emily Axford, Caldwell Tanner, and Jake Hurwitz, thank you for doing what you do. Of course, the biggest shout-out of all always goes out to you, because without you, there is no podcast. And I wanted to take a minute to thank the international listeners we've picked up in Greece, Spain, Brazil, Australia, and the Netherlands. Thank you for helping us get this podcast going internationally. Now, usually I do a big info dump here discussing the updates and changes for the show and what I'm working on. But considering the length of today's show, I've decided instead to record a supplement. It's going to drop right after this show. If you're curious as to what we're working on, please give it a listen. It's only about five minutes long, so it's not going to suck up a whole lot of your day. 
I do want to let you know we are now available on iTunes. So if it's your preferred podcast source, you can catch us there. Also, we now have a YouTube channel, Role Playing History Podcast. Check it out, hit the subscribe button, and click on the bell to get notified when we drop new stuff. As always, you can check us out on Facebook, tweet the show using the hashtag RolePlayingHistoryPodcast, or email questions to RolePlayingHistoryPodcast at gmail.com. So, next week, we dive back into the timeline, picking up in 1995 and seeing just how far we can get. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Wayne Davis, and you're Role Playing History.